Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, is what we're going to I'm going to address. This is where we're at. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 22. The Apostle Paul, would everyone agree with me that the Apostle Paul, if you know the Apostle Paul and what he endured and what he went through for the sake of the gospel, was a man of deep conviction. Right? He had convictions both before the road to Damascus and after the road to Damascus, didn't he? He, he had such great convictions before the road to Damascus that he was even willing, for the sake of what he would consider to be righteousness, to go after those of the way. You and I would be Christians, born-again believers, and have them imprisoned and killed even. In fact, if we consider the fact that with Stephen, when he was stoned, he was there. The people who were stoning Stephen laid their garments at the feet of one Saul of Tarsus, and he approved. He was a man of deep convictions. But would you agree, because God determined this, was he sincerely wrong in his convictions? Can we say that? Yeah? He was very wrong, right? The Lord made it abundantly clear on the road to Damascus. That he was fighting the Lord himself. How does it feel, Saul, to kick against the goads? You know? And so it was at that point that Saul realized that his convictions were wrong. And so this man that was zealous, passionate for the Lord, just had it wrong, was flipped to the point to where now he was unstoppable for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for the Apostle Paul, was there anything that he wouldn't do to win more to the Lord and to encourage others to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? There was nothing, nothing at all. In fact, he said, hey, if I have to forsake eating meat, which God forbid, right? (laughs) If I have to do that, I will for the sake of my brother. I will do that. So that's why we come to this specific verse. And I just, I, I'll, just, I'll just put the challenge out there. Is what we're doing a sin? I, I, I truly, I'm, I'm challenging on Facebook, because we're on Facebook too, so we're out on life. Is what we're doing a sin? And if it's not a sin then we continue on, right? We're getting, we got to a point here where as we consider all the numbers, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Like this whole mandate now to just close shop didn't make sense, right? We're doing everything. We, we're doing what Costco does. We're doing what Seder Brothers does. We're doing what all the other stores, you know, that are quote-unquote essential are doing. In fact, our president, President Trump, said that the church is essential, right? We didn't need his approval. And yet he said, we are essential. I get my mandates from the Lord and from the word of God. He says it's essential. It's the very thing that we ought not forsake. And so we've come back together. 
But let's consider one another, can we? Because my love for you compels me to put together policies, temporary policies, for the sake of you. Right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, the Apostle Paul writes, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So you guys can take a look at those verses and, and really see it in context. But I've seen over and over on social media how those that are taking those precautions and safeguards are somehow lambs that are just following whatever it is that we have out there. In fact, I saw a post, a picture of, maybe you guys saw it, uh, lambs with masks on the top portion and, and a whole pride of lions underneath. And it says, this is everyone else and this is me and my friends. You know, it's like, oh, okay. It's like, you have no idea. I served this nation as a U.S. Navy deep sea diver for six years. Don't challenge me on, on as far as what, how much I love this country and what I'm willing to do for this country. There are men here that have served this country. So that's not in question, right? It's just as brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm just asking you, how are you testifying of the gospel of Jesus Christ publicly? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. I tell you time and time again, be careful what you post on social media. I'm not the social media police. But I do see, and it grieves my heart when I, what, from some of the things that I see. And I've warned time and time again. What we start to do is we, we stop doing what the Apostle Paul was encouraging here. We stop doing that. What we do is we have people put up these walls and they, they don't allow us to go past those walls. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Build those bridges of trust, friendship between you and others. That way they give you the opportunity to share the gospel with them and win them over to Christ. Because the bottom line is we ought to be faithful to God. And he says that we are to make disciples of all nations. Here are your marching orders. We are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's give ourselves that opportunity. All right? And so we're here. Come what may, we are here. And uh, I've considered um, what could come of our gathering together as, as a church. And I'm willing to take those risks. And so I see that many other people are encouraged in that. And so we are here in person. Right? So praise God for that. So any questions, though? I just want to ask, are there any questions in regards to the church and us coming together, or any of the policies that we have in place so far? Mm-hmm. Yeah, First Corinthians nine twenty two. Mm-hmm. All right, so <clears throat> I, I just wanted to lay that out because that's like the elephant in the room, and uh, so just want to identify that.
and uh, explain myself. All right, so um, just so you know, we've had two of, um, what, four theology classes so far, Sundays um, in July, all at 6.30 in the evening. We've covered, um, let's see here, liberal theology and radical theology, and this Sunday we're covering socialist theology. So Tim McManus is going to be teaching on that, socialist theology, so mark your calendars for that. That's this Sunday at 6.30. And then the Sunday after that, um, Robert Odell will be closing out our theology classes uh, with the subject of conservative theology. So that's what we have. We have socialist theology coming up this Sunday and then conservative theology the following Sunday. So again, this is all to sharpen our discernment, to make sure that we understand that when we run across things like this, that we learn to uh, identify them and know that this, these things, uh, what, the, what the contrast is between the genuine and the false. So that's, that's what we're doing. All right, so please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 4. So 2 Samuel chapter 4 is where we're at. In tonight's study of 2 Samuel, we're going to go over two chapters, chapters 4 and 5. What we're going to see is how Israel's weak leadership crumbled. Uh, This is under the leadership of Ishbosheth. As two men on the inside murdered Ishbosheth, and subsequently the throne of Israel was united along with Judah under the reign of David, as he is now going to be anointed as king of both Israel and Judah after seven and a half years of reigning over Judah alone. So let's begin with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening, Lord, eager to hear from you. I ask, Lord, that you would fill each and every one of us with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding, that as we go through, Father, we would see how it is that the man who seeks you, Lord, is a man who seeks your direction and is surrendered and submitted to your authority and lordship. And through it, Lord, you are glorified. And so it's with that that we commit this time of study into your hands, Lord. We ask your blessing and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to get get them and have been sojourners there to this day. So we begin this evening's study with the further breakdown of Israel under the leadership of Ishbosheth. Now, when Ishbosheth, so this was the moment that Ishbosheth had learned that Abner had died. Uh, it was at that point that he lost heart, which means that he he was discouraged, deeply discouraged. Well, we need to understand the whole relationship between Abner and Ishbosheth is one in which uh, Abner himself had elevated Ishbosheth to the position of king over Israel. In fact, if we uh, take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, 
It says there, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. And so it was, as we see in those couple of verses, how it was that Ishbosheth was really ordained as king under the command of Abner. Uh, Abner was the commander of Israel's army. And so immediately upon hearing that Saul was dead, and so was Jonathan and his brothers, uh, we, we have Abner coming to Ishbosheth. Hey, you're the only one that's left, and we have got to make you king right now. And he went and did that. So that's the relationship that Abner had with King Ishbosheth. So it was at the point where he heard that Abner was dead that he lost courage. But we see the impact that he had. Because so did Israel. Israel lost heart as well. Both Ishbosheth and Israel were stripped of their courage when Abner died. Need to think about this because when the object of their courage no longer existed, they were done. What's the object of your courage? What's the object of your hope? Where do you find your strength, your peace, your hope? You see, Ishbosheth's courage rested in Abner. He trusted in man for power and authority. And therefore, it was a weak leadership from the very beginning. Because from the very beginning, it should have been the Lord ordaining Ishbosheth as king if it was truly his plan. And even if it was Abner that was taking that lead role in, in ordaining him, so, so to speak, as king, at that point he should have definitely sought the Lord and looked to him for his strength, for his authority, for his power, for his wisdom, for all of those things. And yet we know that he was heavily relying on Abner to give him that, that authority and that power But Israel knew this. They knew what kind of a leader Ishbosheth was, and apparently Israel saw that indeed he was a weak leader and followed suit after their leader, losing courage and then seeking another to lead them. And so they soon thereafter went to King David. And so the question again is, who do you trust in for your wisdom and purpose? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. In Psalm chapter 18 and verse 2, the psalmist writes, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Uh, it would do us good to re, uh, like commit those to memory. And just at those times when you feel like, gosh, someone else has like really let me down. Someone else has really like come against me and opposed me. And, and like I, I just feel like I am crushed right now. 
remember this. Remember these very things right here. Because these are the promises of God. This is the faithfulness of God right here in Scripture. That's why we ought to commit to memory. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Is what the word tells us. And we ought to do that. As God's children, we are to seek the wisdom from above. James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so we look to the wisdom from above. We ought to always do that. Someone had texted me the other day and just they were really encouraged by the, the you know, the, the whole decision that I explained to you, you know, as far as staying open and, you know, welcoming everyone to come out, you know, Wednesday at 630 or Sunday at nine or both or whatever it is that you want to do. Right. And I just simply responded. I was encouraged. Thank you. I appreciate the, the word of encouragement. I said, but just pray for the church because the wisdom that comes from above may not be received very well the next decision that I make, whatever that may be. <laughs> you know, sometimes it tickles our ears because it was like, okay, I, I, I like what, what he's saying at this point, but as I seek the Lord and I make these hard decisions, you may not like the next one. And then all of a sudden we're enemies. It's like, I, I don't like you. <laughs> That's it. Listen, just know that I'm seeking the Lord. And I'm doing my best to fall in line with God's word. That's what I don't want to lead you astray in any way, shape, or form. Right? And so it's with an impartial perspective and an impartial heart, truly sincere, genuine towards the Lord. And we ought to surrender and submit and subject ourselves to his lordship in our lives. We ought to look to the word for wisdom. Wisdom from above. Now we know that Ishbosheth did not seek the wisdom from above because he trusted in the man, Abner, and now he was dead. We are also introduced to a couple of men whom we will learn a little bit more about later. But uh, these two men, Baana and Rechab, men who led raids for Saul at some time when he was alive, they weren't known as men of high morals. So we now understand where Ishbosheth and Israel is in their outlook. Not good. At this point, they're really broken. They're distraught. They're discouraged. And um, we realize here that uh, as we go into verse 4, that Saul had a grandson, the son of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth. So verse 4 it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. We're going to learn more about Mephibosheth in chapter 9. But this was Jonathan's son who was dropped by his nurse at the age of five. When everything was taking place and, and she was fleeing with his five-year-old uh, in tow and she had him in her arms and, and, uh, and she dropped him. Must have been a great fall 
for him to be lame from that point on. You know, because uh, it wasn't that he couldn't walk, but he just, uh, he, he walked with, with trouble. Like, he, he, didn't, he didn't walk very well. What we're going to see is just keep that in mind, because these, these are just little snippets. You know, for Mephibosheth, he's mentioned here. We'll, we'll uh, see how it is that David uh, responds to Mephibosheth in chapter 9. And, uh, you know, I'll just leave it at that because, you know, you, you need to understand that David and Jonathan made this vow. He promised, David promised to care after the household of Saul. And so we'll see if David is a, is a man of his word and he does that very thing. But for now, we learn that Jonathan had a son. He was still alive. Mephibosheth is his name. He's lame from the age of five because of what took place. And, uh, and so the story goes on with these two, Saul's two men who were captains of raiding bands. Verse 5 says, Now the sons of Vermont, the Berathite, Rechab and Baana, set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabi all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king this day, on Saul and on his offspring. Let's pause there for a moment. So these two men had premeditated murder on their heart. They they planned all of this out, and they had these plans. They made these plans to kill Ishbosheth. By the description of their actions, they were not previously a threat to anyone in Ishbosheth's household, not in Saul's household. There are men who were trusted. They came in and out as they pleased. And in fact, we know because of what they were doing, they were going in for the collection of wheat that they were still even serving Ishbosheth. But we see the act of two disloyal men who were out for themselves. That was the bottom line. This was all revealed in this very moment. The moment they saw weakness, they failed to bolster any discouragement, but rather they took advantage and murdered Ishbosheth to gain the favor of David. They, they weren't there to, hey, you're discouraged, you're disheartened, you're, man, I, I'm here to, to hold your hands up. You're down, I'm here to lift you up. I'm just here to come alongside you. No, no, no. They saw weakness in Ishbosheth and they, they, they thought, this man is going to lead us in the wrong direction. And they plotted to kill him. Both of these were brothers that came together to do this very thing. Now, at the same time, we also see the laziness of Ishbosheth. Now, Ishbosheth, he was the king of Israel. You know, the, the, king, the king is always sought after, not for good things. Sometimes people want to go after the king because they just want to take the king out, especially the enemies of Israel. He should have had a guard posted. No guard posted. Because it was 
he was laying there in his bed when they came and they stabbed him and they actually beheaded him. They had the time to do all of that, which that was, that was, that would have been just an unbelievable sight and not something that would have been quiet. And they went off. And so he exposed himself. This is what Ishbosheth did. He, he was vulnerable and he was really lazy in that sense. This is only an example of perhaps the manner in which he led Israel at that time. He was kind of like, he just gave up. That was it. Perhaps after Abner's death. Perhaps even before. But he didn't have anyone there. So they act like they're coming around to get some wheat. They slip into Ishbosheth's bedroom, stab him, cut his head off. And from there, they made haste to bring the head of Ishbosheth to King David. To present this to him. And at that point, they shifted their allegiance from Ishbosheth to David. But listen, David was wise. He actually he knew that there was no allegiance. These men weren't loyal to anyone, as is demonstrated by what they just did. You know, sometimes we have someone who's coming up to us and talking about someone else. Be careful with that, because don't join in. That's gossip. Don't join in on that, and don't, don't allow them to puff you up and make you feel good about talking about someone else, because if they're doing it, if they're doing it with them, they're going to do it with you. So be careful. Be careful with that. Be wise. For us as Christians, we ought to always confront that type of act with a loving confrontation. You know, like, hey, brother, you know, you might want to go tell that person that, you know, if if that's how they're making you feel. You need to go to that person. You know, there's plenty of scripture that that, uh, speaks to that. In Matthew uh, chapter 5 and then also Matthew 18, uh, we, we know that the Lord addressed this. And so be careful. You need to be wise. You need to be discerning. So when someone comes to you and, and is, is trying to make you feel good by thinking that perhaps this news is good news to you, and yet it's gossip, make sure you identify it as gossip and tell them, hey, listen, bro, you, you need to go talk to that person. You need to go make things right with them, or confront them if, if they're in sin. But David was no fool. He discerned that they had no allegiance to anyone. But their statement, you can look again at verse 8. They said, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. So they knew the whole relationship that, uh, that Saul and, and David had. You know, Saul was continuously going after David, trying to kill him. In fact, he put a, a hit out on him. And, uh, and he, he personally attempted to kill him several times. And so they knew this. And he says, who sought your life? The Lord was, has avenged my Lord, the king this day, on Saul and on his offspring. So now they're calling him my Lord. How quickly some people will turn. One moment swearing they'll hold your arms up when you're weary and it's difficult and say they'll follow you into the battle. And the next moment they're speaking against you and running to someone else. Don't be, these are all lessons that we ought to learn and take to heart, right? We look at these things and we say, that's not going to be me. I'm going to learn 
what it means to stick it out and be loyal. We ought to look at these things because God loves those people who are loyal toward him and come together truly as a family, as a family. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have one for another, right? We demonstrate that by what we endure. May we learn to be loyal and trustworthy and remain by each other's sides, especially when things are tough and very difficult. We are dealing in very difficult moments. Stick together. Stick together. Remember, Peter learned his intention. Uh, He learned. His intention was one, but what he did was another. But after he repented and learned, he was loyal to the end to Christ Jesus, his Lord. In fact, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. Imagine if uh, you were talking with Jesus and he said this about you. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Simeon, Simeon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Did the Lord lose any love toward Peter? Not a drop. Not at all. But he warned him. He said, this is going to happen. Hey, listen. When you have turned again, in fact, the, the, the word there means to repent. When you've repented, because there's, there's something that needs to take place. When we realize that we've done the very thing that the Lord warned us of not to do, we are to repent. That means to do a 180. We turn from that. When you turn from that, don't, head, don't, don't hang your head down in shame. Don't close up. Don't lock up. You need to go and strengthen your brothers. In other words, you need to go. At that point, you've learned. You've stumbled. But hey, listen, you've repented. Because we know, as it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John knew this. Peter knew this. James knew this. All these men who walked with Jesus knew this very well because they all stumbled. You guys know the sons of thunder? Yeah. Oh. I mean, they were asking, hey, um, you know what? Can, can we sit at your right hand and, and your left hand when we come into your kingdom? Like, oh, you have no idea what you're asking. <laughs> no idea. The, these things are not the proper things. They're not the right things. But yet they all learned. When you learn, strengthen your brethren. Strengthen your brethren. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's a word for us, that we be prepared for action, 
sober-minded, clear, clearly thinking, seeing all things and discerning. We have our, our head on a swivel, so to speak. And we see everything around us clearly, setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's our stay. That's what we cling to. That's what we are fixed on and who we're fixed on. Well, for these two men, uh, any of that would, be, would, would uh, prove to be too late as far as turning. They've already done what they did. So David's response was certain and it was immediate as we continue on in verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So these two brothers learned very quickly in the middle of this response that things were bad. They made the wrong decision. They chose wrong. Because these two men were saying that this act was, was really God's vengeance on the enemies of David. That's the way they saw it. That was their perspective. We did good, didn't we, David? Look at what we did. And here's his head. David saw things differently. We know that David considered Saul to be God's anointed, whom not even he had the right to kill. He had two opportunities to kill Saul, and he didn't. These two men were claiming they were acting in line with God's will and in obedience to God's command, but they clearly did not understand how David saw things. They, they didn't know the man. There, this was a fact. Saul was indeed David's enemy who sought his life. Can we all agree on that? I mean, someone's trying to kill you. He's your enemy, right? That was a fact. Fact. Saul attempted to kill David personally and repeatedly. Those are facts. Fact. David regarded Saul as God's anointed and determined to do him no harm. Those are all facts. We know that. It's documented. It's written for us in Scripture. We have it all there. It's kind of like, how is that? How can that be? Because David's perspective was one in which he received that wisdom from above. It wasn't something to where, like, in, the, in worldly terms, that would be crazy. There's no way. Why would you do that? Why would you think that? When you had an opportunity to take Saul out, you didn't. Why, what, why did you not do that? You're weak, David. That's why. It's because you're weak. Like, no. Sometimes the greatest strength I've seen in men, and I admire them deeply, is when they withdraw. And they don't do something that perhaps at the moment they think is right, and they realize later, I discerned correctly. The Holy Spirit was restraining me. And I didn't do something. And it glorified the Lord. David knew. This was a man, after all, after God's own heart. These men grossly miscalculated David's response. 
They thought he was going to be happy and reward, reward them for doing such a thing, and, and it didn't happen that way. David understood that vengeance belongs to God alone. And David had promised to take care of Saul's family. And so David concluded that their act was evil. And they were evil men who were to be put to death. It was a judgment that would communicate to all. This is to the whole nation, Israel and Judah, as they were coming together. That he was not going to accept anyone lifting their hand against the house of Saul. And that he would take swift action against anyone who did. And so he made it abundantly clear once more. Let's move on to chapter 5 and verse 1. As we see the anointing of king over Israel. Verse 1 says, And all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So 40 in total. So all the elders from the tribes of Israel came to David, submitted themselves to him as their king, and David accepted that submission, that surrender, that subjection, and received them. And he made a covenant with them to be their king. So it, it took some time, though, for them to come to David. When they knew that David had been ordained by God to succeed Saul and reign over all Israel. This is interesting. This, this is kind of at this point to where perhaps they saw, well, they, we know by their own confession, right, that they knew this. And yet, they didn't say anything. And they allowed things to continue on the way they had been for several, several years. They had been following Ishbosheth for all those years, knowing this truth, having even seen evidence of it when David was with Saul, all the way back then. There are times when we fail to surrender our lives to Christ and His Lordship, oh, we have surrendered our lives as far as salvation is concerned, that salvific work has been accomplished in our lives. But allowing him to sanctify us, oh, that's a whole different story. Oh, sometimes we allow it to happen for a certain amount of time, and then we start compartmentalizing. We say, you're allowed here, but not here, and I still want that. And so there's these things that we do, and we start kind of just organizing that in our own minds and and that is not of the lord we need to surrender everything to him and it shouldn't take years it should be we should come to realize that we are to demonstrate our love for him by our obedience to him our submission to him our surrender to him and and as we do that we demonstrate that we understand the love that we've first been shown and demonstrated in that while we were still sinners christ died for us we didn't deserve that We didn't deserve salvation. We deserve condemnation. Sometimes we fail to surrender our lives to Christ and his lordship until everything else seems to fail to work. It didn't all work, so now I surrender. A little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. 
In John 10, Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd and he is the door. Remember Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. In Matthew 11, Jesus tells us that he is gentle and lowly in spirit. Jesus tells us that, he will, that we will find rest for our souls as we go to him. We need to go to him often. As we labor and are heavy laden, we are to go to him. Remember, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. We need to go to him. Not with some things, but with everything. He's either Lord of all or not at all. You know, sometimes we say, oh, oh yes, Lord, you know, and these things. But then the next moment we say, no, Lord, you know, it's like, how can we say no, Lord? It just doesn't, doesn't match up, right? He's either Lord or he's not. We either submit and Surrender to him or, or we don't. We need to yield to him. David was described by the elders of the tribes as a shepherd of God's people, Israel, and leader over them. That's what prince, uh, prince means, an administrator or a leader over them. What they were confessing is that David was ordained as king by God to lead them, and they had seen evidence of this. And they were submitting to this leadership, his leadership, as king, as they agreed with God. They, that, that was... A simple confession, that's what it means, is I am agreeing. When this took place and they recognized David as king, it was not this little private thing. Yeah, hey, just the leaders coming together. Did you know that over 340,000 soldiers came together for this very ceremony? This was amazing. This was huge. This was what they did. They gathered all together, and there was great joy in Israel. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 38 says, All these men of war arrayed in battle order came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them and their relatives and just everyone came together. Can you imagine? I mean, this was, this was a, truly a sensational, just an amazing um, gathering together, a unification of Israel, Judah and Israel coming together under the reign of David. So it says here that David was 30 years old. He began to, uh, to reign uh, seven and a half years. He reigned in Hebron and then another 33 years in Jerusalem for a total of 40 years. So think about this because David was prepared. It's believed that he was 15 years old when he was anointed by Samuel, uh, when he was still living with his father, Jesse. And it wasn't until 15 years later or so that he became king over Judah. And then he spent 40 years as king. 15 years, you could say, plus of preparation, because we know that there was also preparation for his reign while he was out in the field as a shepherd. So all of that, great preparation for a great assignment. Sometimes we grow impatient with the preparation, with that part, but there's more to come. With God, there's more to come. Just stay tuned and stay prepared. Keep your eyes opened and remain open to whatever it is that the Lord wants to do with you. Second Samuel chapter 5 and verse 6. Let's continue. It says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. 
thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up to the water shaft, up the water shaft to attack, quote unquote, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So at that point, Jerusalem was still occupied by the Canaanites. Uh, Remember that God had commanded Israel uh, to completely take over all of the land that he had given to them. And yet here, 400 years later, the Canaanites are still in possession of parts of the land of promise. In fact, these were known as Jebusites. So when you uh, see Jerusalem referred to as Jebus, this is, they're referring to Jerusalem. That, that is the city. Um, what we see with the Jebusites is an overconfident people. Uh, they were mocking David. Oh, the lame and the blind can ward you off. Like, it, it won't take nothing. Why? Because they had the advantage. They had the, the high place. That, that, that was a place where you could, for the most part, safely guard against enemies coming against you. And Jerusalem is set up on a hill. And even more so, the city of Jebus, or Jerusalem. So they, they said, hey, listen, the blind and lame can hold you off, David. There's no way that you're going to come in here. But they didn't take into account the fact that with God, all things are possible. That's why you need to seek his wisdom. How are we going to do this? Take your time. Place your hope in him. He'll give you the wisdom that's necessary to take care of the opposition and to get through things that seem to be insurmountable. David and his men went up the water shaft and attacked the lame and the blind and defeated them. Obviously, they weren't thinking that he was going to go up the water shaft. Um, has Some of you have been to Jerusalem, right? Have you been in Hezekiah's tunnel? These waterways, right? We, we, didn't, we couldn't go through when we went last year. because Was it last year? Yeah, it was last year. Because um, it was stormy and the, the water level was, they said it was too high, so we can, couldn't go through. But I can imagine, you know, they, they just weren't thinking that they're going to go in through where the water is routed everywhere. And yet this is the very way in which David and his men came and they conquered the city. And so they conquered the lame and the blind. They said the lame and the blind is, gonna, is going to guard against you and they'll beat you. And, and so they said, no, we've, we've defeated the lame and the blind. Obviously, that's what they gave to us. But David, um, at that point, once he conquered uh, Jerusalem, he he built it up to be a stronghold and made it the new capital of Israel. The city of David is what he named it. David is described as becoming greater and greater for the Lord. The God of hosts was with him. It wasn't because of anything great within David. It was always remember this. It was it was number one, it's always for the Lord. And number two, it's because he's with you. If he's exalting you, it's for the purpose of glorifying the Lord, not yourself. Never for for yourself. Remember that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And if he can speak through a donkey, he can speak through you and I. (laughs) Right? 
He's great. When we know that the Lord is with us and nothing is too difficult for him, then we can seek his wisdom and figure out how to do what other, others think is impossible. It can't be done. We wait on him. We hope on him in a faithful God who knows and is able. As was pointed out earlier, David was 15 when he was anointed king, 30 when he assumed the throne of Judah, 37. Uh, and, and then uh, so he served in Hebron as king there for uh, seven and a half years, a total of 33 years in Jerusalem for a total of uh, 40 years as, as king. But David's ascent to the throne was not, did not come overnight. There were plenty of events along the way that continued to confirm God's calling and appointment for his life and continued to shape him into the man that God desired for him to be as he assumed the reign of Israel. In fact, the following verses speak to this, how God was confirming in David this very thing. Uh, verse 11 says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And there it is again. David was a great man of, a, a man of great wisdom and character. He built alliances with other kings, for example, Hiram, the king of Tyre. David realized that God was exalting his kingdom. These are all great confessions. These are all things, again, that we need to have before us. David acknowledged that God was doing this for the sake of his people Israel. These are all things that he acknowledged. And David, really at this point, as we see this, even as, as he's confessing these things, he's assuming the role of a humble servant of the Lord and led as a steward of what God had entrusted to him. Nothing belongs to us. We're all stewards of what we've been entrusted with. Let us take that same perspective, that same view of our lives and glorify the Lord. A strong leader is humble before God, fears him with holy reverence, and leads others for the glory of God alone. Second Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time... He may exalt you. Let's continue, though, because in verse 13, things kind of turn a little bit. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibar, Elishua, Nepheg, and Japhia, Elishima, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Well... I've already addressed the whole polygamy thing. This was actually in violation of Deuteronomy 17, 17. Um, and and uh, it was a warning. It was a warning to the, any king who would do this very thing that his wives would turn his heart away from the Lord. And we know that to be true. We know that to be true of David, and we know that to be true of Solomon. For many people on that day... Uh, many wives and children were a sign of a blessing. But note that David's greatest issues came within his own family. He had many problems. And I, and I pointed to them last, not last week, but the week before when we covered the previous chapter. And, um, and then within his kingdom because of that. And so um, that was the impact. Uh, for example, there was uh, the issue with Absalom. So anyway, I've already addressed all of that. It's not something that 
was, uh, was blessed by the Lord, it's not something that he desires. It's not court according to his word. But this is what he was doing. Verse 17, let's continue. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David's great unification of Israel didn't come without opposition. Great opposition. Remember, the whole ceremony involved over 340,000 soldiers. I mean, it was a great spectacle. It was wonderful. But soon thereafter, the enemy was after David and Israel. While God was at work with David and Israel, Satan was at work with the Philistines and assembling them to come together against Israel. Once again, we see David go to the Lord for guidance. Hallelujah for that. Um, we need to see David continually going back to the Lord and seeking his guidance. And he, we see him with, at this very moment. He was seeking his approval. And as he did, the Lord assured David that he had given the Philistines into the hand of David. And when we see this, it, it appears that he had an easy victory. As David and his men, it's described here as they burst through them and the Philistines fled. Uh, like when you see that fullback running through the line and in, 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 uh, in, in hitting someone who is unsuspecting in football. You guys watch football? Yeah? And you see him just like train someone. It's just like, oh my goodness. You know, that's, that's incredible. And just a clear shot to the end zone and, you know, touchdown. Israel burst through the Philistines in that manner. And that's why they even named that place. Hey, this is, this is burst through right here at this very place. So it was almost like an easy victory. You ever had something like that in your life? You thought, man, this is going to be just a tough situation. But you just like burst through it. You're like, wow, with the Lord, yeah, truly all things are possible. Like this was cool. Like we, we got through this. Oh, think again. There's more to come. <laughs> because the enemy wasn't going to give up that easy. And we see here the, the enemy assembled again and was coming at Israel. Verse 22. But I didn't read that, did I? Wow, I skipped all of that. Okay, let's read it. How it was that they busted through. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. A breakthrough, and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. There, now it makes sense, right? All right, so let's continue. Verse 22, and the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Ephraim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. You go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. What a wonderful, like this is like in succession, right? We have, 
we see one battle and it was just a breakthrough. It was just like they just burst through. It, it was an easy victory. But at that point, can you imagine David, he was feeling quite encouraged, confident even, right? He could have in himself, and yet he didn't. When they assembled again, something very important for us to, to realize, to, to heed, to, to apply to ourselves, our own lives, when we see the opposition rise again and assemble against us, go back to the Lord. Because not every situation is the same. And be careful that you don't rely on yourself. Because you didn't do it in your own strength the first time. You're not going to do it in your own strength the second time. How sweet it is when you seek the Lord and he gives you the manner in which to handle a battle. Oh. So not a direct hit. No. You're going to go around behind. And when you hear the, the, the rushing of the wind in, in the balsam trees... That's when you know I've gone before you. Rush in and take them on, on at that time. The battle is yours. This strategy introduced the element of surprise, and that is what the Lord desired. In either event, we saw David seeking the Lord, and he had success. In any event, seek the Lord like David did, and he will go out before you, and you will know victory. Time and time and time again. It may be difficult, may be difficult, but in the end, victory is always when you glorify the Lord in how you respond to situations. That's victory always. Two things not to assume in closing and two things to do. Number one, just because you've defeated the enemy once doesn't mean he isn't going to come at you again. Be ready. First Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Number two, just because you defeated the enemy one way doesn't mean that the Lord is going to defeat the enemy again in the same manner. Go to the Lord and ask again and again and again and wait for instructions. Don't grow impatient. Wait for instructions. Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be snake birds. As cunning as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. That's what we are to be as children of Christ, the children of God, uh, followers of Christ. We are to seek him always. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, once more for your instruction, your word, for it will never return void. I pray, Lord, that it was resonate in our hearts and we would take it, apply it to your glory. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your patience with us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us walk in the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.